0: Well, good morning, church, and we are beginning a what I, I think will be the next four months um, a look through this powerful story, this story of Joseph. And you know, this story is actually one that has caught the world's imagination. Um, you may be familiar with Andrew Lloyd Webber, who composed the famous musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Um, Agnes Meyer, a, a literary critic, wrote in the New York Times Book Review, he, he called this a magnificent story, which exceeds in drama, opulence, and movement anything that Hollywood has ever dreamed. So the world has, has noticed this story, which is really um, quite comprehensive. That The last third or so, maybe a quarter to a third of the entire book of Genesis really tells us this, this, this long story of of joseph and and his brothers and and I would encourage you at some point, uh, maybe even this week, if you haven 't already, sit down and read it in one go and and it, it is powerful it, 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 there's something about we're going we're to take like I said about four months to to go through it verse by verse, um, you know chapter by chapter, um, sometimes maybe two sermons on a chapter or something like that but there's something about backing out and just looking at this story in one broad uh, sweep that I think will be very powerful for you. Um, I did this actually last January uh, when I was sick with COVID. And, and you know, um, my, my dad, being a physician, was trying to keep me out of the, uh, the hospital. So he had me on all kinds of steroids. And of course, that alters your mood a little bit. You know, so I found myself weeping, no kidding, as I was reading through this book. I remember Beth walking into the room and she looked at me and was like, are you okay? And I had tears streaming down and I you know, was a little embarrassed. But this is a powerful story that, that grips your, your emotions as you, as you read about you know, betrayal and forgiveness and reconciliation and, and salvation. So talk about a, a roller coaster of a life. That The, the stasis of the story starts out with Joseph at the age of 17 uh, in, in the fields of Palestine tending his father's flocks. But before you know it, he, he's now on this, this roller coaster just diving down into the depths of being betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery into a foreign land into Egypt. But then, then we see him kind of climb up to the, the height of, of suddenly, he, he's, and of course it wasn't suddenly. In fact, there were years that are, that are silent here that I think that there are things to learn from the implications. But now he's like ruling uh, or, or running the household of one of the most powerful households of the empire. Potiphar's home, right? So he's on this high, but then suddenly he's, he's falsely accused. And then he's in this pit, this dungeon for years. And then, of course, we know that, that again, he goes up and, and is suddenly in one day pulled from this pit to suddenly now he is, he's given a shave and a, you know, a shower, I hope, uh, or a bath or something, and a new set of clothes. And now he's like ruling Egypt, so talk about a roller coaster, and yet Joseph is constant. Whether he's on a higher or low, when you, when you read this story, you get the sense that he's the same guy, that he's anchored by his relationship with, with God. And the fruit of that relationship has, brings about admirable qualities that we can learn from, like integrity and endurance. And we see in Joseph... Specific wisdom in being able to interpret dreams, and we'll we'll talk about that a little more as we get into this this whole story. And we see forgiveness, like a, a supernatural forgiveness in, in in Joseph that comes from this anchor of his soul, this relationship he has with with God. As we as we kind of think about Joseph, um, I'd like to read to you a paragraph from Dwayne Elmer's book Cross Cultural Servanthood, and this is a book that ABF. Two is working through right now, and and Elmer goes through a number of of, uh, of principles that really help missionaries cross culture, uh, but also I think I think we're seeing in ABF two that this applies to our lives in our daily, in, in our daily walks, uh, even in our own society, but then Elmer uses Joseph's life example as as really kind of the fulfillment of of all these principles he talks about in his book. And he, he has this to say about Joseph. He, he writes, Loved and accepted by his father, rejected and hated by his own brothers, he experienced the best and worst in life. Mystery stalked his life for years through no fault of his own. Forced to live cross-culturally, he responded nobly. Finally, he found himself in a position of enormous power, When the opportunity came to unleash revenge against his brothers for their betrayal, he was gracious and ultimately forgave and was reconciled to them. Through the fog and the sunshine, one phrase keeps recurring, the Lord was with Joseph. Joseph honored God and walked with him. God blessed and prospered Joseph, but did not protect him from the mysterious trials of life. Yet during those mystery phases, Joseph acted no differently than, things, than when things were going well. He honored God and walked humbly through each day. Joseph doesn't seem to change whether he is second to the most powerful person in the world or left a rot in a dungeon. When it was all over, God had used Joseph to save two nations, end quote. So that's, that's our introduction to the story of Joseph, right? But this morning, in these, as we consider these first 11 verses to this, to this story, I, I want for us to consider the divine setup of the story of Joseph, the, the, the divine setup of the story. So let's look together again at, at the very beginning here, verse 1. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now, it might be a little interesting because, um, uh, you know, we read this story, we think, wait a minute, this is all about Joseph, not Jacob, but it says here, these are the generations of Jacob. That's the intro here. Now, the, the Hebrew word for generations is toledot, toledot. And you could translate that word in a couple ways. It could be translated, this is the genealogy of Jacob, or even the family line of Jacob. And so you'll see that. Various translations um, translate this word in several different ways. But actually, the the, the actual word Genesis, the actual title of this whole book, gets its name from the Toledot. And and there are actually 10 Toledots throughout Genesis that serve as transitions— Vodibachum called them mile markers, okay, throughout Genesis. And, and what they do is, is that they, they, they show you God's sovereign working here throughout the, throughout the book. And so here we see the 10th final Toledot here, that these are the generations of Jacob. And what this helps us see is that the plot here isn't just Joseph the hero. And often we, we, we like our heroes and uh, we, we, we often fall to maybe moralism when we read the story, right? And, and fail to see the actual big picture of what God's doing. And, and so you get this idea of, okay, kids, here's Joseph the hero. Be like Joseph. And, and there's no doubt we're going to point out a number of incredible characteristics in this man's life that we are going to say imitate Joseph, right, as, as he uh, followed God. We are going to say that. But really, the story here is that of God's fulfillment of his promise to Jacob to make him a great nation. God is going to use Joseph's faithfulness through hardship to get it done, all right? And and I, I hope what we'll see here, the sovereign hand of God and also God's grace, because frankly, Jacob wasn't that admirable of a character, all right? And Jacob couldn't get it done on his own. It was actually his son that God used to fulfill his promises to patriarch Jacob, who became known as Israel. Now, let's talk about the characters of this story, and we're going we're to introduce more later as they pop up, characters like Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife, and Pharaoh, and Pharaoh's servants. But right now, we, we see several key characters. First of all, there's Jacob. Now, now sadly, Jacob had four wives, uh, and all kinds of trouble ensued. Um, Jacob's polygamy, and we see this in other other places in the Old Testament, where the Bible is actually very candid about the failings of humanity, okay? Even of of God's people that he dealt with graciously. Um, And so we want to be careful to avoid moralism when we're going through the Bible and realize that God uses flawed characters, right? And it's all about God's ultimate grace. Well, Jacob had four wives. His, his first two, and you'll remember probably the story about Rachel and Leah and Treacherous, their father Laban, who, who Jacob loved Rachel and, and worked for seven years for Laban to, to win her handed marriage. And somehow, a little bit of mystery to me, wedding night, and guess who it is? It's not Rachel, but Leah. And Jacob kind of realizes that after the fact. And so he works seven more years for Rachel. And so now he's got two wives, and what does he do? He favors one over the other. Well, the two sons of Rachel, which was his favorite wife, his first love, was Joseph, who's 17. And Benjamin, Joseph's younger brother, who's still a boy uh, in, this, in this story, and he comes up later. But we know that, that Rachel died in childbirth, uh, giving, bringing Benjamin into this world, right? And so um, you have Joseph and Benjamin, and then there were the six sons of Leah. And so Reuben, who was Jacob's firstborn son, uh, and then Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulun, and Judah. And again, we're going to see later in this story how God actually chooses to use the line of Judah to bring about the Messiah versus Jacob. Um, and, And Judah, actually, you'll see if you read ahead to Genesis chapter 38, which we are not going to cover in this story. It is inspired Scripture with a purpose, okay? Uh, but it is not specifically material to the, uh, to the, to the story of Joseph, and frankly, um, I, uh, I'm not sure you really want me to preach from Genesis chapter 38, to be honest with you. You can read that chapter, Uh, And you can see the wickedness of Judah. And yet God brings Judah around and and does some things later, we'll see in this story, to where God actually chooses Judah. And again, we see his electing grace at work. And so we're going to talk about those things uh, as as they come. Well, there were also four more sons that Jacob had from two what we might call secondary wives, Uh, Sometimes the Old Testament will use the term concubine, okay? Um, And and frankly, this is nothing short of just sinful behavior and uh, 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 dismal behavior, if you ask me. But Jacob had two other wives. One was named Bilhah, and the other's name was Zilpah. And actually, these wives happened to be his first wife's servants, So Rachel's servant was Bilhah, and Leah's servant was Zilpah. Well, Jacob took them in as his own wives as well, and they bore him Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So Joseph was the second youngest of all the sons. I already mentioned Benjamin was a boy. All of these other sons were grown men, older than Jacob, right? We're talking 20s, 30s, probably 40s, okay? Okay. Um, as well. Maybe even could be, it's possible that even, even a little bit older for some of them. So, v- Vodi Bakum points out uh, he wrote a, a very interesting book uh, on, on uh, the, the story here of Joseph that I would, I would commend to you. But he points out that, that other than Jesus da- and Daniel, Joseph is the only main Bible character where we don't see sin explicitly pointed out in, a, in his life. And of course, Jesus, who is sinless. But Daniel and Joseph are the only two main Bible characters that the Bible doesn't actually point out failings and, and sin, right? I mean, you think about all our heroes. You think about Abraham. Uh, you know, he's a liar. Uh, he, 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 you know, at one point he, he was a coward. He, he, he let Pharaoh have his wife and said she was his sister. I mean, uh, you look at David. You know, uh, you look at you look at all of these guys, and they were sinners like we are. And and so was Joseph, but in his story, which is a significant uh, uh, portion of the book of Genesis, we actually don't see any explicit sin pointed out. Um, But we do know, according to Romans chapter 3, that they were still sinners. Uh, Kent Hughes points out some interesting similarities between Joseph and Daniel. And he writes, Both Joseph and Daniel displayed the wisdom of God both men interpreted the dreams of their kings. Both could not be compromised. Both were jailed for their obedience, and both were made vice regents of their adopted realms. So I found that quite interesting, some of these parallels. And, and I think, and I hope that you will see some ways as we look at Joseph's life, that his story and even his character points us to the real hero, the, the true hero, and that is Jesus Christ, the, the Son of God, the only man who never failed, who never sinned. But juxtaposed against Joseph's righteousness in this story is his older brother's wickedness. And, and against his father's love for him, we see his brother's total hatred towards him. And we're going to see that played out more next week as we, as we look at their treachery um, and, and the, um, the abduction and the sale of Joseph to the Ishmaelite slavers. But right off the bat here, we, we actually see three reasons in the text that Pastor Joshua read for us. We see three reasons why Joseph's brothers hated him, all right? And, and, and frankly, uh, th- there are several different sources of causation for that, for their hatred. The first reason is that they saw Joseph as a narc, So look at verse 2b. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. So you remember that would be Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Okay, now interesting here. there, There are two... Hebrew words here for bad report. The first is ra, which actually means evil. So Joseph brought an evil report. Okay, for some reason our ESV kind of makes it just a bad report. The, the second word is deba, and this is a—the the word ra is like hundreds of times throughout the Old Testament. The, the word deba isn't used very often, but in every other case in the Scripture where it's used— it actually means like a questionable or untrue report. Now, I really hope I'm not popping anybody's bubble here because Joseph's a hero and we like our heroes and they're supposed to be like unblemished. And I'm certainly going against, you know, plenty of preachers who've been like, there was nothing wrong with that. You know, Joseph was just speaking the truth. Well, he might've been a little bit of a tattletale, okay? Uh, but specifically to his brothers, this would have been inexcusable taking an evil report of their activity. I have no doubt what he said was true, maybe or mostly true, but he was seen by them as a narc. That's inexcusable in in that culture. And frankly, nobody likes a tattletale, I don't think, kids. So I'm not, I I would say this may be, there's going to be a whole bunch of like, be like Joseph's later. Uh, Be very careful before you take bad reports of your siblings to your parents, But secondly, the second second reason they hated him, which was no fault of his own, was that he was his dad's favorite. He was his father's favorite. Look at verse 3 through 4. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he was a a son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers— they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now make no mistake, this was a dysfunctional family. You had kids from four different moms with a dad who favored the second youngest. And he was his favorite son. And, and you may, you, you know, you, you, think, uh, you think Jacob, you should know better. If you remember Jacob's childhood, his, his dad loved his brother, his big brother Esau, more than him. Remember Esau was kind of the manly man, the great hunter? Well, Jacob had grown up knowing what it's like to have a parent that prefers, that loves their sibling more than them. He, he knew that pain, and so what did he do with it? He did the same thing, right? He, he chose to prefer one child over the other, and there's nothing less than just plain uh, a boorish, sinful behavior there. Okay, so so here is a a, a terrible example of, uh, in the life of Jacob. Um, we we see earlier that he loved his wife Rachel more than he loved Leah, and you can imagine the pain of Leah uh, uh, throughout her entire life, uh, having her younger sister being preferred to her. And now we see that Jacob loved Joseph more than his brothers, and probably that was for two reasons. Uh, probably it was it was probably the main reason was that he was the the, the son of his beloved Rachel. Rachel had, had passed away, and so it's likely that, you know, Joseph could do no wrong. And then secondly, Joseph was a faithful son, and we're going to see more of that next week. Um, uh, uh, jo- uh, Jacob sends him out on a mission, and, and we're going to see an ex- a wonderful example in Joseph of faithfulness in executing that mission. And yet... Um, In in contrast to his wicked older brothers, we see Joseph as a a guy that his dad could count on, and so his father loved him more than his brothers. And there are other reasons. Uh, If if you have read through Genesis recently, you may remember that um, Jacob's firstborn, Reuben, had committed incest with one of his lesser wives. Um, uh, Chapter 38, as I already mentioned, shows some horrific wickedness in Judah's life at this point. In, in, his, in, his, in his stage of, of growth. And we see back in chapter 34 that Simeon and Levi were both very violent men. So these, these were some bad characters, these brothers, these older brothers of, jo- of Joseph. Now, Jacob had given Joseph a robe of many colors. Now, again, I, I'm not trying to destroy all of our... Um, um, all of our notions here of of this story, um, all the picture books. Uh, It's possible that this robe was multicolored, but that translation is actually a little bit dubious. It's possible that it was simply a a robe with long sleeves, okay? And I'm not going to get into the whole Latin and and Greek and and, and, uh, translations from the Hebrew, uh, the Vulgate, where where we get this idea of multiple colors. But if you notice, uh, there is a footnote here if you have an ESV Bible that says, or a robe with long sleeves. The NIV translates it, a richly ornamented robe. So regardless of whether it was multicolored, it was a richly ornamented robe, and the coat itself is actually referred to four times in the story. Of, of, of chapter 37. So, the, the coat serves as kind of a, a marker of this whole story, and its significance is that Joseph was being honored or treated as if he was the firstborn, even though he was really the second to the last born. Or you could say, uh, from Jacob's perspective, he was the firstborn of his favorite wife, his second wife, Rachel. Um, and you can just understand that this, particularly, this would bother anybody, but in this particular culture where the firstborn son was the one to be given a double uh, portion of the inheritance, that's what this robe signified. That you, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, forget these guys, I'm treating you as my firstborn, okay? Because you're my, you're my favorite. And, and, and so this would have just galled the brothers of Joseph. So what we see here is sibling rivalry. And, and maybe if we're honest and we think about our own lives, maybe we're a little bit familiar with that. Uh, maybe you're a child in this room. Have you ever said the words, that's not fair? When you're thinking about something that one of your siblings, older or younger, get or treatment they get? Or, or maybe you don't have to be a young child in this room. Maybe you're getting on in your season of life And you still say, that's not fair, when you think about siblings. It could be an end-of-life issue that you're having to deal with, or it could be an inheritance issue. The, the, The whole concept of sibling rivalry is something that I think painfully we're familiar with. And so you can understand the angst that Joseph's brothers would have felt due to Jacob's sin of blatant preference of one of his children over the others. And so his brothers saw him as a narc. They saw him as his father's favorite. And, and finally, they saw him as having dreams of grandeur, right? So look at verse 5. We, we actually see two dreams that, that Joseph has and that he shares um, pretty, pretty um, boldly with his family members. Um, and, and the first was an agricultural dream, and the second was, was more of a cosmic dream. So look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. So you can imagine the response of his brothers to that dream, his brother said to him, "Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us, you little whippersnapper? You know who do you think you are?" So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So, so you would think that um, Joseph, at this point, would have probably learned a, a valuable lesson, and that is, you don't have to say everything to everybody the Lord may give you a dream. You, you don't need to share it all in technicolor with your brothers who already hate you. Uh, it might not help the situation. So God gave Joseph another dream, a, a co- more of a cosmic dream. And what did Joseph do? Well, he did it again. So look at verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars. Now, now, just remember your math here. Twelve brothers. So there's Joseph and eleven of them. They they were pretty quick to interpret this one, by the way. Okay, they they got it. And they got it accurately here. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. So how would you respond if your sibling told you, old or young, they had a dream like this? Okay, would it be with, wow, okay, I can't wait to see this, say God, God make this happen. Well, so, so uh, we, 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 we read that, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, even his father was like, this is over the top, man. Uh, I like it. You're my favorite, but you know, dude, what are you thinking? So his father says to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in mind. And I do think that's interesting, that his father pondered this in his heart, even though he rebuked Jacob. The, the actual word in Hebrew is actually very strong. Uh, he, like, he like violently rebuked Jacob, okay? His father was angry about this one. Now, I, I, I think it's possible, maybe even likely, that somebody's going to come up to me after this message, and they're going to give me a well-thought-out reason— for why Jacob was, or I'm sorry, why Joseph was justified in telling his brother his dreams. And I will listen respectfully, but then I'm going to say, or at least I'm going to think, nah, he was just being a knucklehead. (laughs) The dreams were legit, but you don't have to say everything. So kids... Don't follow Joseph's example here. I'm going to tell you a lot of, as we go through this, I'm going to tell you many, many ways that that you should follow Joseph's example. But here, I'm not so sure, okay? I think that the Lord did a, a real work in Joseph's heart through a lot of the tribulation he went through to refine his character and his wisdom, okay? During his time as a slave, during his time in the pit, I think those were instrumental in his spiritual formation, Okay, so kids, don't stoke the fires of jealousy among your siblings. If you get something special, take the lower position and be as humble as you can about it. Okay, don't go peacocking around. So, do I think Joseph should have shared everything with his brothers? No, I don't. But I'll tell you this the dreams were from God, they were legit. And they were prophetic. And why do I say that? Well, later we see in Genesis chapter 41, verse 32, as as Joseph is explaining uh, Pharaoh's dream to him, right? And the meaning of that dream, which was indeed from the Lord, because we saw it happen, right? Joseph says, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So you notice the doubling of dreams that the Lord gave Joseph about what was going to happen in the end in his relationship with his brothers and even his his father. And then finally, and more conclusively, in Genesis chapter 42 verse 6, we actually read about the very fulfillment of this dream that God brought it about. So we read in in, in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 42, now Joseph was governor over the land He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the ground. So in God's providence, this dream that that he gave Joseph actually was fulfilled and came about. And I think this is important for us to remember as we consider the characters of this story. So so far we've... And by the way... um, I had a question here in my notes that I have some sub-points to, and I'm going, because of the sake of time and the things that we're going to do uh, today, I'm going to defer that for a future sermon. But this was the question. Does God ever work through dreams today? You get to wait maybe a month or two for that one, okay? We'll come back to it. We'll come back to that question, but you can ponder that one if you like. Um, Does God ever work through dreams today? But let's consider God's role in this whole drama. Okay, God's role in this story. We've looked at the characters. We've looked at, at Jacob. We looked at the brothers of Joseph and Joseph himself. Pastor Kent Hughes asked the question, where was God in all of this? In, in these first 11 verses. And in this first chapter even, verse, chapter 37, all these horrible things are going to happen to Joseph. Where was God in all of this? We may wonder. He was adding fuel to the fire. And I would say jet fuel to the fire. Hughes continues. He writes, The hand of God was everywhere in this sweeping narrative as it orchestrated the creation of a preserver of his people. God's hidden hand had its subtle way among the morass of human sin human sin and divine revelation were made to do his good work. The effect of the dream and its narration set in motion a chain of events that were not disasters, but the work of grace. As the story begins, God providentially brings about Joseph's rejection so that Joseph himself might ultimately be used to effect his people's salvation. You get the point. No dream no story, right? God knew exactly what it was going to take to fuel the fires of these brothers, their own wickedness, which God hates, but to, to get Joseph to Egypt. So if there was no dream, there'd be no story. There'd be no betrayal, no enslavement, no transport to Egypt to save two nations, including the, that of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. And, and further, This was how God chose to sovereignly fulfill his prophecy to Abram. Back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 through 14. We read that, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." So this dream was the catalyst for this small clan of nomads, right? They were they're living in the, in the fields of, of, of Canaan that later became Palestine. And, and, and how, they, how they came to Egypt, where over a period of more than 400 years, they, they, they grew into a full-fledged nation that would be rescued by God's hand through his servant Moses, if you remember, and go out plundering the Egyptians with the wealth that they would need to create a new nation, to be able to go out and and conquer Canaan. And so God was fulfilling His promises even through the catalyst of these dreams. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, states that God's work of providence is His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all His creatures— In all of their actions. Now, the Baptist faith and message, so, you know, know, sometimes I get accused of, I think Pastor Bill calls me a Baptisterian sometimes. Um, um, Let me me quote to you from the, the Baptist faith and message. God as Father reigns with providential care over His universe, His creatures, and the flow of the stream of human history according to the purpose of grace. I hope you'll see here in this story, that God is the main character, and He's sovereignly orchestrating a good plan, even through the tangles and the morass of of human failings in in sin, right? Even through tragedies in people's lives, He is doing something big and something great that at the time they couldn't yet see. Now, I I went back, and uh, just a couple weeks ago, I was up at at Southern Seminary um, doing my last doctoral seminar, and, and I noticed on the wall the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary's Abstract of Principles, which was the theological statement that the uh, seminary—of the foundings of the the seminary from 1858. Now, I read through it. I was like, amen, this is awesome. Um, Today, if you— um, if, if you're a student at Southern, or if you're, a, if you're a faculty at Southern, you have got to sign every year as a faculty that you agree with his abstracted principles, and if you do not, you're terminated from your position, right? Well, there's a very strong uh, statement on God's providence that I thought was really good, and this is what it says. God from eternity decrees or permits all things that come to pass and perpetually upholds, directs, and governs all creatures and all events— yet so as not in any way to be the author or uh, approver of sin, nor to destroy the free will and responsibility of intelligent creatures. So if you stop and think about that statement for a minute, you might ask, well, how does he do that? And I'd just simply say, that's a mystery. God is really big. And you can just rest your soul and your heart and your mind right there. God is really big, okay? Okay. He does not approve uh, or love people's sin, and yet He is even able and does work through that to accomplish His purposes for history and for our lives. He is big, really, really big, and just settle your soul there. And I hope not only will you settle your soul there when you think about God's sovereignty and His providence, but I hope that you can take heart there. You know, maybe in your life, you, you hung a right instead of a left, okay? And I've heard people say this. I got outside of God's perfect will because I married Joe instead of Bill, all right? And, you know, Joe's kind of a loser. I wish I'd married Bill. Bill loves the Lord with all his heart. Joe, not so much, all right? And now I am, I'm, I'll never be in God's perfect will for the rest of my life. You ever heard people say things like that? I took this job instead of that. I hung a right instead of a left. And now I'm on this like plan B track, right? This, this whole flow chart that will never be God's perfect best for me. Well, that's, that's all, what's a, what's a word I can use from the pulpit? Um, working on it, working on it. Uh, that's a bunch of baloney, all right? Um, take heart, maybe you made a left turn instead of a right turn. It doesn't mean you're on that second rate flow chart for the rest of your life. God is sovereign and he redeems and he can make something beautiful even out of our tangled lives. Yeah, he can, he can use even sinful decisions and responses that we made or, or that others made towards us to do something beautiful and powerful through our lives because God specializes in redemption. And that's what, that's what Joseph explained to his brothers at the end of the story. In Genesis chapter 50 verse 20, he said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Things that grieved God, things that were wrong, you know, we're talking about betrayal and lies and violence and, and, and man-stealing, okay, uh, and slavery. Wicked things that God did not approve of, but mysteriously, providentially, that God actually used and, and actually wasn't surprised by. He's not the direct cause of evil, but He's sovereign and providential over all things. And so Joseph says God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph was able to see salvation in this, and, and he didn't even see it perfectly. God used Joseph to save Judah. And we know that Jesus Christ came from the loins of Judah, right? The bloodline of Christ. So God used this. And what this means is that because we believe God is sovereign over history and over our lives, we can believe that He brings His will to pass even through the sinful actions of others, and even through the, the tragedies and the sufferings of our own lives. And Romans 8 promises that ultimately, at the end of the day, God's will is for our good. Romans 8, 28, and we're going to read all the way through verse 30 here, because I want you to notice a couple things. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now, there's a qualifier here. All things work out for good for those who love God for those who are called according to His purpose. Brothers and sisters, all things don't work out for good for those who don't love God. Okay, there's eternal damnation, a wedding. we got a mission. We've got a—there we uh, uh, should be an impetus in our hearts to share the gospel, the hope, so that they may repent and, and believe and come to know Him, so that their end may be good as well. Now, keep, keep reading here, though, because we, we like Romans 8:28, and often we, we quote it alone— Okay, outside the, the, the bigger context. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, who, who al- he also glorified. Now, now, a couple things here before we move on. Uh, when you hear that word predestined, you know what you need to think of? God is big. God is sovereign. He has a plan. He has a a good plan, and it is going to happen, okay? But I want you to notice here that our greatest good isn't necessarily our comfort. It's our conformity to the image of Jesus, and often it takes hardship and suffering to get us there, to being conformed to the image of the Son. But I also want you to see here that God has predestined every believer to not only be justified. That's a big theological word, very rich in meaning. And, and those of you who are here as we went through Romans, probably understand, you know, probably remember. Uh, this is God's act of, of taking a wicked sinner like me and saying, I am declaring Troy Hamilton not by any Merit of his own doing But I am, I am declaring him I am making him indeed righteous Because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross Jesus paid for my sins And so God looked at Jesus on that tree And, and he looked at my sins that, were, that Jesus took on himself And God then put Jesus' righteousness on me Clothed me in his righteousness And, and God, if God says it, it, that's it It is so, Right? So God has predestined every true Christian, everyone who looks to Jesus in faith, to be not only justified, and that's good news because everyone in this room who's trusting in Jesus, who's truly trusting in Jesus has been justified, okay? God isn't looking at you and and thinking of all of your wickedness. He's looking at you and he's thinking of the beauty and the perfection and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's that's why you stand. That's why he is able and does accept you and adopt you. We talked about these concepts today in ABF2, into and, and his beloved, into his family, and delights in you, right? Because of his grace. So that's, that's true for you if you're in this room and you have truly put your faith in Jesus Christ. But, but take hope here, right? Not only did God predestine every believer, according to this passage, to be justified, but also to be glorified. What, what that's talking about is what hasn't yet happened that's heaven, that's your new body right? In, in the new heavens and the new earth. And, and, and the way he uses this in Romans 8 um, 30 is he actually writes it in the past tense as if it's already happened. It's so sure that it will happen. And what that means is maybe you're suffering right now. Maybe your back is killing you, right? And, and, and you want to hope that your back is going to get better. And maybe it will. Maybe the Lord will heal it in this life. Or maybe he won't. Maybe this is going to be an area of suffering for you for the rest of this life. But take hope that this is not your future, right? That this life is like a shadow. I mean, it's a vapor. It's like that. But your eternal future is with a great back. It's going to happen because he's going to glorify you. Okay. So how does the story of Joseph point to Jesus? You know, Jesus told His disciples on the road to Emmaus that Moses and the prophets point to Him. And, 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 and here's what Jesus said in Luke 24:25 25-27. Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So according to Jesus Christ himself, you've probably heard me say this before. Or other pastors say, you know, uh, just like, you know, all roads in the old Roman, you know, Spurgeon used to say this, um, all, all roads in the Roman Empire led to Rome, you know, and all roads, frankly, in, 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 in England point to London. They all get you there. They're all kind of centrific, right? All, all of scripture points to Jesus. And it's easy to think, yeah, sure. And then maybe you stop and you think, wait a minute. You know, I, I can get that. Like, how? I can see how, like, um, um, the prophets, you know, texts of Isaiah point to Jesus. But really, uh, how does Genesis really point to Jesus? You know, uh, you know is there a danger here of, of maybe reading in too much? And you know what? There is. We have to be careful here. You know, you could read the story of Joseph and be like, yeah, Joseph had this robe. With long sleeves or many colors, whatever, Jesus had this robe, you know, that was, you know, specially made, right? You can, you can do that. You can find Jesus behind every rock and, and read in all kinds of stuff, and we got to watch out for that. But according to Jesus, Moses points to him. And this is like the last huge chunk of the first book of the Pentateuch, what Moses wrote. So somehow this story of Joseph truly points to Jesus Christ. And let me just share with you what I see as the big picture of that. God used Joseph's suffering to save two nations and the bloodline of Jesus Christ. He used Joseph's suffering to partially fulfill his promise to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that was of a promised land. But that promise would only be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus Christ. You see, that promised land points to heaven, to the new heavens and the new earth. And and so Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God used the story of Joseph to fulfill that partially. And so I think when we look at this story, we can see how it points to ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Well, you may ask the question, okay, that sounded kind of theological. Um, I, I think I got you, but maybe not. Um, How in the world does these 11 verses we read this morning in our text point to Jesus? And I'll answer that with one word, okay? And that is rejection. Rejection. We see a theme of rejection here. Joseph was rejected by his own brothers as part of God's great redemptive plan. And yet Christ was rejected by his own people as part of God's final great redemptive plan. We see this prophesied in Isaiah 53, verse three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, in in a few moments, and I'm looking for her here. She might be up in the balcony with her family. There she is. Um, we are going to pray for and even commission Sydney, right? That's her code name, uh, who is leaving this week to go to an unreached people group on the other side of the world, okay? A place where um, people are, are um, often uh, hostile towards people who follow after Jesus Christ, right? And, and we're, we're praying for her, we're sending her out as one of our best to join a team that, that is working together through, they're doing medical work, they're doing all kinds of great stuff, but their ultimate goal is to build relationships, to share Jesus, and to plant the church where there is very, 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 where, where it barely exists, okay? What a worthy task. But I just want to say to you, Sydney. That as you go, you know, there are places that we send missionaries where, 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 where the cultures are primed to greatly receive and, and actually think highly of them. Okay? Where you're going is not one of them. Where, where you're going, if people knew that was your identity, they would, they would seek to imprison you or worse. Okay? They have a very low view of ambassadors, of, of cross cultural uh, workers who are there trying to proclaim. The gospel of christ and so the whole culture is primed to reject you and i think you know that sydney but at times it will hurt at times there will be people that you care about that you're trying to love who are going to respond to you with rejection i remember facing the same thing when my family was doing something very similar in another part of the world in central asia I remember laboring and working on the language so that I could understand people and more importantly, so that I could be open to them and accept them and build relationships such that I could share the Savior with them, right? And when I, after about a year, when I started getting to where I could understand more, I I could hear the molas and several mosques within earshot talking negatively about me on Fridays, saying all kinds of lies about that haraji, that outsider, that foreigner living here and keep your family away from it all right? Well, you know what? It kind of hurts. It kind of hurts. But I want to encourage you, Sidney, remember you're getting to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and, and, and Joseph and others who've gone before who were also rejected. I appreciated what, what Pastor Vody Bacham had to say here. He, he wrote that this is not a feel-good story wherein the hero returns victorious. I think we often read Joseph that way, right? Um, Remember, by the way, that when he left, we're going to see in a minute uh, next week that, that, that his dad sent him on a journey to go find his brothers. He never went home. He never got back to Palestine. He, he prophesied. That's what the writer of Hebrews remembers. He prophesied that his bones would be, re- be returned, but he never got to go home. This is a tale of redemption, Bachem writes, in which Joseph plays and pays an unthinkable price For a purpose much greater than he. This is an important truth for God's people to understand. In fact, one of my greatest problems with the typical Aesop's fables approach to the story of Joseph narrative is the tendency to reduce this story to a hang-in-there, you'll be rewarded in the end tale. The truth is, God's people suffer. End quote. That's what Bodhi Bakum had to say about this story. And I think he's right. Now, what's cool in the story of Joseph is we do see vindication, and we see the purposes, right? We see, and Joseph got to understand the reason for his suffering, and that is a beautiful thing. But the truth is that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. And so we read in John's account of Jesus's incarnation. In John chapter one, verse 10, we read that he was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him who believed in his name, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So as we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, let's search our hearts. Let's not reject Christ. Let's receive Christ into our hearts this morning. So I want you to, as, as, as I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to ask during my prayer for the for the deacons to come up. Um, and, and as you pray, I want to in- encourage you to, to ask him, have, have I been living this week? Have I been living today? Has, has my heart been receiving you, Jesus? Or have I been part of rejecting you by the way I've been living, by, by my perspectives? Uh, and, and now's the time to repent and to look to him in faith um, this is a this is a an opportunity for Christians. So if, if you're if you're in this room and you are not a Christian, like if you have, what, what we mean by that is if you have not. Uh, repented and put your your faith in Christ alone for salvation. We we welcome you. We're super thrilled you're here. Actually, we hope you'll keep coming back because we want you to hear this story of God's redemption and salvation for you and what that means. But we didn't. We'd ask you not to take of communion this morning because this is for Christians. If you're if you're a Christian and you you you're, you're visiting from another church and you take communion at your church, boy, we hope you'll join us. We're we're thrilled to thrilled to have you with us. Uh, but now is a chance for us to to search our hearts and to confess any any sin that may be there, that may be lurking, any ways that we've been rejecting Him, and we want to receive Christ with, with, all, of our, with all of our hearts. So let's, let's bow, our head, bow our heads and, and pray together, and then we'll move into a time of, of reflection as we prepare for communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your sovereignty in history, your sovereignty in Joseph's life, your sovereignty in bringing a a final hero and redeemer and savior Jesus. And thank you for your sovereignty in our lives today. Lord, we pray that you would reveal yourself more and more to us. And Lord, we pray that that we would receive Christ uh, wholeheartedly this morning. In his name I pray. Amen.